a stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to another episode of Relentlessly Resilient, where real people share real-life experiences and the tools they've developed to move forward and live their best life. I'm Jenny Taylor. And I'm Michelle Scharf. We have a guest. We had her on a few weeks ago. We brought her back. Her name's Holly Rebain, and she is a daughter of a police officer. And we are coming on National Police Week. If you want to learn more about Utah's Fallen Heroes, you can go to www.utahfallen.org. And we're going to talk today with Holly, and she's going to tell us about her father. She's got such a heart and such a connection to her father, and she's got other police officer family members that she is so proud of. And we're just so glad to have you on our show today, Holly. Tell us about you and your dad and what it was like being raised by a police father. Thank you, you guys, again, for having me on. I'm so touched and grateful to any opportunity to talk about my daddy. I will take it. She loves her daddy. I love that. Oh, that's so sweet. He was my person to say losing him. Oh, oh, something glitched and... You Okay, my father may be haunting this message. He doesn't like people talking nice about him because he's so <laughs> humble. <laughs> um, so my daddy was my person, my very closest friend and ally at all times. Growing up, little girls already, without the law enforcement officers, we already love our dads and um, admire them. But as long as I can remember, he was my hero. I always knew that he was doing the work to protect us and to protect everyone else. And he had a way of explaining that, that daddy goes to work on Christmas and on Thanksgiving because, you know, he needs to to protect all of us. And I knew at a young age that we were sacrificing time with him because he truly believed in what he loved. Our dad loved to go to work and therefore never worked a day in his life. So what he would tell us. I love that. So when we got old enough, we got to ride in the car with him on patrol. And seven years old is the time I decided I wanted to be a police officer. I wanted so badly to be a police officer. And I rode in the police car with him all the way through high school. I rarely ever dated or anything. I I wanted to be on the weekends on his patrol route with him because I just adored and respected and admired him so much. Uh, He was a cop's cop. Uh, This is what many police told me in his last days that, that he was the first one to get on scene. He wanted to be the first one in. And he always, always had the backs of his team. And, you know, it took him 30 years to get his degree where he could actually climb because he loved being on patrol so much and he worked 20-hour days. When he finally got his degree, started testing, immediately became a sergeant, immediately became a lieutenant. And I found reprimands after he passed uh, where they were saying, Jim, you can't go on calls and actually go in with your team. You're, you're supposed to be outside overseeing. You can't be hands-on. I mean, and then in that same week, he's getting um, acclamations from the chief of police saying what an extraordinary lieutenant he is that he is 
right in there with his team on these calls, <laughs> and his team feels secure and safe. So, not just it's watching also an from up the down road. Yeah, right. He loves the patrol car. My father had been famous for breaking every bone in his body on the force. And <laughs> Deseret News did a whole story on him called "West Valley Officer Gets All the Breaks." Or they go through all his injuries. And since that story had happened, he broke his neck another couple of times. Oh, my gosh. Uh, four times total. And, yeah, they called him Super Cop because, you know, he'd get a surgery. He had an excellent surgeon, and he was back to work as soon as they let him come in. But then he would, he worked detective. He also worked the evidence room just, just to get back in the police car so he was better. So my dad was a cop's cop indeed. When I was 15 or 16, he'd gotten in a shooting where he'd killed a man. And I remember the fear of that. Uh, my stepmother, who also became a police officer after she married my dad, because going on patrol with him was like, everyone wants to be a police officer that rides with him because he makes it look He's fun. He's like a living recruiter. He is. He made it look fun. I got to see my father engage with people that were committing crimes. I heard how he spoke to them. You know, somebody is shoplifting and then they're back at the car. And he's like, just, Holly, whatever they say to you. He told them not to talk to me, but he's like, whatever they say to you, just just try to take it with a grain of salt. We did catch them in the act. So just so you know, they did it. Oh, man, by the time he got back to the car, I'm begging him to let this person go. They've had a really rough go at life. And he just, he just shakes his head. He says, sweetheart, they're, they're not going to go to prison forever. They're not even going to prison. This is the first time, but we have to let the system work. Our job is to protect not only people, but businesses. It was just neat because he would interact with them. He would give them a good talk to um, a Christmas Eve. We'd go out on patrol and instead of giving tickets, he would give Christmas cards. And we were even like in a short pursuit with this Corvette and my dad finally pulled him over and he said to the guy first thing, you better pop the hood on this thing because I got a Corvette engine in my police car. I don't know how you were pacing me. It was just so <laughs> funny. The guy is terrified. He was just in a pursuit. And my dad gave him a warning and said, you know, I'm following you home, right? And he's like, yes, sir. And we did. We followed the guy home. He wasn't drunk, nothing. He just wanted to open it up, you know, on this straightaway. So this is the type of man that my father was. He was very, very chill and cool. But then when times of trouble came and safety and officers' lives were in danger, he could snap into protection mode and he did that on the day that he was in a shooting in west valley a man who was mentally ill was attacking neighbor's fence and uh bike the little boy's bike scared the little boy with an axe oh my and goodness my dad had dealt with this man a few times knowing he was mentally ill and says you know he was on a call at another place he heard this guy's name over the radio he said i'll go you know i've worked with this guy a few times you just need to talk to him just differently uh, he gets there. The guy's locked inside the house. Uh, my dad opens the door of the house, the glass door, before you get to the main door. The man opens the door, but he stands back about six feet, and he's got the axe in his hand. Another officer goes prone to the other side of the door. My father's standing up holding that glass door open, and my dad's trying to talk to him, and he's like, please drop the axe. Just drop the axe. And he can see this guy's got tunnel vision on the officer prone to the left side of the door. And he's not looking at my dad at all, like he doesn't exist. And my dad is trying to scream at him, using his name and asking him to drop the axe. Well, he actually brings the axe down on the gun of the officer 
you know, at the bottom of the door. The officer drops his gun and goes to retrieve it. And as this man is going for the second swing on the axe to hit the cop, where he's going to now hit him in the head, where he's actually out there, my father shoots him right to center in the chest. And he goes backwards. And then the two officers then have to tackle him and they fight him. This man was very big, 6'3". My father, I think, was 5'8", 5'9". So it took him quite a while to wrestle him. At the time, my dad didn't realize he'd shot him because of the fight that they'd went through. And they got the cuffs on him, and immediately they rushed my father away, and they rushed this man to the hospital. He dies en route. They rushed my father away because the press now understands there's an officer-involved shooting, and they're going right. to head over to the location. And back then, this would be 1992, I believe, back then they had rushed them away, and now my father's sitting in front of all these lieutenants, captains, and the chiefs and telling them what happened. And after that, he's put on paid leave pending the investigation of whether it's a justified shoot. Now, during those three weeks or months, I remember being home and just hearing him pacing all night long. He he had severe insomnia. He was so disturbed. He's questioning everything. Did I tell the guy to drop the axe? He has no memory of the event. He has no memory clear memory of the investigators asking him all these questions. So he's panicked over it. And eventually we read in the paper, we were finding this out from the paper. The neighbor is, oh, we kept hearing the officer yell, drop the axe, drop the axe. That settled his heart a little bit. But, you know, he didn't know. He didn't know what if it was a justified shoot or not. He was very panicking. And law enforcement was his life. Yeah. This was his favorite thing. His brothers and sisters he worked with, his family. They were our family. So after all is said and done, it was justified shoot. They gave him essentially the Medal of Honor for that department for saving the other officer's life. It was beautiful. But to my father, it felt really undone because, you know, he, he was in Vietnam. He served in Vietnam and he never talked about it ever. He was on the ground in the army. And um, this through this brought it all back because he saw the man's eyes. I mean, he had tunnel vision on this man. So this was really hard for him. What was harder for him was the not knowing where his career would go. Would he be able to serve and would he be, would his family be safe? Would, would there be attacks on him? This is around two of the time the riots were happening in the Rodney King trial, things like that. It was just a very weird time to be in law enforcement. Once he had this shoot justified, he worked with the FOP. FOP stands for Fraternal Order of Police. My father brought the Utah FOP into West Valley City, and he was a member. He loved it. He loved it that it was a, a brotherhood and sisterhood that was nationwide, that they worked and helped each other. So after his shooting and dealing with you know the regular procedure that he went through, he had one of the FOP attorneys get with him, and he said, we have to change this. Cops have to know, one, that they've got someone in their corner for them. They have their own lawyer, essentially, that is protecting them in this time of shock because I had no memory of what was happening. I was in so much shock. And so he basically, with the attorney's help and money from the FOP, and I even got to be in the movie, they made a film for law enforcement to go nationwide on how to handle a officer-involved shooting. 
you know, you sit down with the officer and the officer has a rep there from the FOP. Um, That rep talks to the officer. They go through all the statements that the officer has, and then they give them a few days before they meet and, you know, go through and give their story. They give them those days so they can actually recollect what they might have missed. My father was very open, as was my stepmother. They, They talked about crime scenes and they talked about, well, we didn't have anything we didn't talk about at the dinner table. Growing up in law enforcement, it's like, you know, you have to make light of a terrible situation or you will swallow it and it will just grow inside you. And that was something my father always would make jokes. I told you about my fire when he said, are you having a fire cell? Yeah. That's the type of the joke he would make to try to get rid of the pain of what he's witnessing and to try to help people like me get rid of that pain and not swallow it. So he was wonderful at that. We need to take a break. So we'll take a break and we'll be right back. I'm Dave Cauley, investigative journalist and host of the podcast, Cold. In October of 1985, a woman named Cherie Warren left work at a busy Salt Lake City office. To meet her estranged husband at a downtown auto dealership. She never made it home. Cherie's car surfaced weeks later in Las Vegas. In the parking lot of a hotel casino. No one knows how it got there. Strange. It was strange. Both Cherie's estranged husband and her boyfriend raised suspicion for investigators. I kind of thought that he might have done something. But no arrests were ever made. In Cold Season 3, we dig into double lives, make new connections in the case, and examine the difficulty raised by reasonable doubt. We want answers just as much as anyone else. They have creeps like that now, too, so nothing's changed. That's the new Cold Season 3, The Search for Cherie. Now available anywhere you get your podcasts. And we're back, Holly. You were just getting ready to to go on a different direction. So tell us where you wanted to go. (laughs) My dad's name is Jim Crowley, Lieutenant Jim Crowley, West Valley Police Force, 41 years in law enforcement. He also was the longest serving member in the FOP. And when he passed away, he was the national trustee for the Western states in the FOP, elected official for the FOP nationwide. So he traveled all the time visiting different departments and everything. When he was sick, there was 300,000 police officers praying for him. I was putting out notices every day, giving his updates, and I couldn't tell you how many people, both through Facebook, through Messenger, through phone and text, were reaching out. People from all over the country and some from all over the world, Britain, Israel, people that knew my father uh, because of his work in the FOP. The president of the FOP was a very, very dear friend of his and was right by his side a lot of the time. And then I have to say our state FOP president and the state secretary, the the state attorney for the FOP, these men, Brent Jex and his team, but they, they were by his side every second. And Travis Brower, these two men were sons to my father and They looked up to him. He looked up to them. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. But since my dad was first involved in the FOP, they wanted to create a national memorial 
for law enforcement. That all the states would have their fallen represented in D.C. And he worked with a committee on that to get that done. And I was 20 years old when he took me for the first time for graduation and from college. I got to go with him and see the development of this. And at the time, it was Clinton that was president. And I got to see and shake his hand and everything. And this memorial was so huge and it was empty with names, which is great. It's exactly what we want to see. Sure. It's a marble wall that goes up a little higher than waist high. And the names are etched in so small as they're added year to year. And I looked at my father and I, he said, you know, we'd been to the, the Vietnam Memorial Wall earlier that day where he sat for the longest time so quiet. He would never talk about Vietnam, but he held his hand on the wall and he would just he would be so quiet. I'd never been there with him. But we got to the memorial and the police memorial, and he said, you know, I, I couldn't be with my brothers on that wall in Vietnam. But it would be an honor to be with my brothers on this one. And as a daughter, I'm thinking, you're out of your mind. Yeah, who aspires and to want I don't want their you name. on this wall. <laughs> yeah. He said, Holly, there's a certain type of person. There is a lion within every person, but there is a lion bigger and badder and more amazing than all else. And they're the lions that guard that line, the thin blue line. And those that are killed in the line of duty give everything to protect that line and to protect their brothers and sisters on it. And it is an utmost honor because this isn't something like that Vietnam Wall where we didn't get to decide who we were and where we were going. We were drafted there. This is a line that we signed up to guard. And we are the line between you and civilians and the devil in this world. And so those on that line, they write a blank check too. And they give it all. What an honor this wall represents. It is such an honor that these lions, lions among men and women are honored here. And it was so beautiful the way he described his feelings for that wall. Yeah, that is that so, is a powerful perspective to view that not as something to be avoided or feared, but to be an honor. Holly, can you tell us, um, I know you've mentioned this wall is in Washington, D.C. Sadly, there are more names on it now than there would have been in the Bill yes. Clinton presidency. Uh, we have some Utah guys on that wall, even from the last couple of years. I know Ogden and Provo have very recently lost. Um, Ogden was Nate Lyde, Provo was Joe Shinner's. Um, We've got Romrel. We have, unfortunately, that granite's not blank anymore. What can you tell us about how this National Police Memorial is celebrated every year at this time of year? Well, since the Clinton administration, I was 20, I've gone back for Bush. I've gone back to see um, Obama. I've gotten to see Trump. I haven't been back under Biden. The president's come. Obama missed a couple. Um but the best one I ever attended was, was Trump's. 40,000 officers showed up to that one instead of 20,000. This starts off, they kick off police week, and usually it's around the May 12th, 11th. They've got, they've, right now they've got a bicycle team that is traveling across the country, driving to police week, raising money I love for the that. memorial. Oh, that's great. And they'll all come into the city about the same time, around the 12th. On the 13th, and I don't have the notes in front of me, but I've been so many times. So 
This was such an honor. My husband and I got to bring our children the last couple of times. I wanted them to see their OG pot in action. To them, he's just this funny, fun grandpa that does cool stuff. They have no idea that when President Trump is up on stage and then he's done talking and gets down, their grandpa goes up on stage and he is sitting up there with everyone. And they're like, oh, my gosh, grandpa knows the president. You know, it, it was just it was such a beautiful thing because then you get to see 40,000 people in uniform. Now, on the 13th, they have what's called the candlelight vigil where they shoot a blue laser into the sky. They hand out candles for the crowd and the place, it floods the entire mall all the way as far as you can see candles as they read the names of the officers killed in the line of duty. And I'm sorry to say that it's usually a long list. Yeah. And when they, you know, you're talking nationwide, um, every police department and agency that is federal agencies as well. Far yeah. too far too many lost in one year. Far too many. Brotherson was killed in West Valley City when my father was still alive. And that was the first officer killed in his city. And he'd been a, a police officer there since it became a city. His badge number was twenty four. He was the twenty fourth one this morning. Wow. Oh my and Cody when Cody Brotherson passed away, my father took that so personally. Yeah. And, uh, you know, he, he was working now with the attorney general's office on ATF task force and still representing West Valley. But to him, it was like, I should have been there. I should have been there. Cody was a young, young officer, very amazing kid, just an amazing guy. I call him a kid because he was far younger than us, but a great officer. And it was a terrible loss. And the FOP was right there to make sure that there was an honor guard with him 24-7 at his side from the time his body was moving anywhere his body was until they had the funeral and up until the point that they put him in the ground. There was an honor guard with him. His family and his fiance were, were taking care of with the FOP and made sure they were eating and they were informed what was happening. And it was just a beautiful ritual that unfortunately the FOP has to go through. Uh, with families that lose someone, but it is so beautiful. The families aren't alone. They need for nothing. And I'm here to tell you because they did it for me when my father passed. And that's what the FOP is about. That's what the COPS organization is about. These organizations pop up. The honorary colonels are a number of business people who are just there to help when an officer's in trouble. And these are regular businessmen and women who just want to help the blue. So all these people come together Cody's name was on the wall the year we went, and it was just, you know, all these West Valley police officers come. And what happens after the candlelight vigil and all the names are read, the next day they open up a number of shops in an area where people can buy stuff. And it's really fun. They have music and they have performances. And it's D.C.'s open up with cops everywhere. It's no safer place, right, than D.C. on that week, on police week. Then comes the 15th, where that's the morning of the memorial. And that's the morning where the president will come and speak. And the president of the FOP will come and speak. And what they do is they have a wreath. And all the families get to walk up to that wreath. And their spouse or dad or son or daughter gets to, um, they read their name. And they're thanked by 20,000, 40,000 people. And they put a little carnation on that wreath till it builds up the National Memorial's symbol. It's a situation you never, ever want to think of having to do to take that walk. 
But um, they asked me to do the walk after my father died to honor him because of all of his work with the memorial, with all of his work with law enforcement, his dedication to the FOP. And so me and my children got to take that walk with a number of West Valley City police officers. And what year was that? Holly, what year did you get to do that? In 2019. So just very recently. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. He had passed away in 2018. And usually when you die, they will do a year after because sure. they need that time. Oh, and get the family time to be up to traveling and everything. Yeah. Well, and, and the traveling is covered usually by the FOP or the colonels or cops organization. They try to make sure that it's convenient for the family sure, as possible. And I, we were treated amazingly, and a lot of people knew who my dad was. And they honored him, not as a fallen officer, because sure. he would have just, he'd been so angry because he wasn't <laughs> worthy. He wasn't worthy of that. He would tell me that. I can hear that in my head right now. How dare you? I'm not worthy to walk amongst these But they honored heroes. what he did to provide for those who are fallen officers, and that's important too. They, yeah, and they called it. They were honoring him. They honored all of the retired officers in law enforcement yes. who have passed. And that was no small thing. Most of our retired officers still want to be involved. My dad knew that. He stayed in the FOP, and to me, it kept him going. It kept him, a lot of retired officers really start to struggle because when law enforcement is your life and it is your happy place, whether it's bad or good, yeah. they are needed. And it's once they retire, they're not needed. Yeah. It really can put it, it can hurt them. It can hurt their hearts to not be needed anymore like that, like a soldier coming home. Sure, it's the, the same world. transition from veteran to civilian. Absolutely. Yeah. And so my dad was always concerned about that. And the FOP here in Utah has started this amazing, amazing program to help officers that are transitioning or, or going through something in an anonymous way. And it's a mental health option that they get. The FOP pays for it. And an officer can contact them and get complete anonymous help so that it doesn't go in their jacket, so that it's not used against them in any right, way by their right. department. The but it's a resource. It's a resource they need. I mean, if any profession needs that type of resource available, it's our first responders, our police, our military, our Absolutely. fire. Absolutely, Holly. We're going to take one more break, and when we come back, we want you to tell us what you have learned about resilience through this wonderful father of yours and the legacy of his service with the police department and the Fraternal Order of Police. We'll be right back. Holly, you've got this father of yours that served not only as a uniformed officer for over 40 years, but he served his fellow officers living and deceased through his work with the FOP, through this beautiful national memorial. We know Salt Lake City has a state memorial. I imagine other cities and states across the country do. But as always, we want to tie this into resilience. I can't imagine the amount of resilience your father would have had and taught and shared with those he served with, with you as a family member. What can you tell us about resilience when it comes to what you've learned from this wonderful father of yours and his law enforcement career? I told Michelle that I didn't know if I belonged on this show because resilience to me is not a word I would say that I have come out of. I feel like he just died yesterday, yeah. uh, but it's been four years and I still struggle because I miss him in grief. It's hard. 
But I'll explain resilience on his end. My father saw the worst things, and he would always always come home and try to be his best self. And, yes, he would jokingly take us through, you know, well, we were riding in the police car, so we got to see some things ourselves. But he would he would always assure us, you know, that, that there is an important job that a person is called to do. It isn't something that you just apply for because there's an opening. He said, no one could have ever talked me out of being a police officer. I feel it in my blood. I know it's something I need to do. I need to serve my fellow man. I need to, I need to be on the front line because I've got my babies at home. I want this world to be a better place, and I feel like it's my calling. Well, I told him I wanted to be a police officer, and he looked at me, and he, he'd already told me no one could ever talk to him out of it. Don't let anyone talk you out of it. That was what he would tell people. But when I told him, he's like, Holly, couldn't you just be a fireman? No one hates a fireman. <laughs> and I said, you know, he didn't want me to be a police officer, and I knew it. And when he says no one can talk you out of it, he could talk me out of it. He was my person, and I never wanted him to worry. And then I found out how much they made, and it wasn't hard for me to be talked out of it. <laughs> and high maintenance. Uh, well, and just incredibly demanding. He, exactly. He also knew I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom and having helped raise my younger siblings because my parents were both so dedicated to the job and trying to do family. Uh, our family was not normal, and we knew it. But he would give us, our, or my stepmom and dad would give us two weeks in Lake Powell with just them, and it was like the best two weeks of our lives. So quality versus quantity for us, and they gave us everything we could have ever asked for, more than we could have asked for. We were spoiled kids. But I'll tell you, his love of the job, I always grew up knowing that was number one. I learned later in life that it was attached to his family because he thought if he did a good job, then his family would be safe. And I started to grasp that we were number one. But the man had a sense of humor. What he wanted for his fellow officers was he wanted them to be safe. He took it personal. He arranged for people to go to Ferguson when the BLM protesting first started. And um, he arranged for people to go to Vegas when the shootings happened and police officers were in need. His brothers and sisters in the field were so important to him that my father started not working on Thanksgiving as normal, but he would make a full meal of Thanksgiving dinner for the officers working. We'd take it, and that was his way to be there for them. He broke his neck one time when he wasn't even on the job. He just heard the call come and knew an officer was in trouble, and he went there in plain clothes and actually intercepted the guy that he was chasing and that's where he got his neck broke but i mean we would go on calls all the time going to a movie theater and he'd end up taking a detour just (laughs) this was his life it was it filled his soul service was what filled his soul so this utah memorial is very very special to him and he with the fop wanted to get it here and get it built a lot of police agencies worked hard to get it built to honor our Utah fallen. And they worked very hard to find Utah fallen officers from as far back as the 1800s to honor them and get them on that wall. My father's legacy is what resilience is all about. My little brother's in law enforcement now, and he's a Crowley, but he's his own Crowley. My little brother has a whole different way of being an officer than my dad did. My brother is, uh, is a lot more kind and calm. My father was a Go get it, go get go get. Um, my brother's perfect with people, all kinds of people. And it takes a lot to get him riled. If you wanted to fight my dad and offered, he was ready. 
it's very funny, the differences in them. And my dad was so overwhelmingly proud of my little brother. And I know for a fact he's in the police car with him every day. And my, my brother is now a detective in Summit County, and we are so proud of him. My brother is resilient. He was best friends with my father as well. We all were. But my little brother is resilient. He, he was grieving, and he was able to come through it and see the beauty in it all. And he just knew that he wasn't alone, and he was walking forward with my dad by his side and his beautiful family, and every day is a blessing. And, uh, you know, it was hard for me. My family, my children were grieving. They were very close to their grandpa, and I couldn't see past my own grief to think that my kids could be grieving. My husband, my husband loved my father like a best friend. So one of the things that my dad wanted to do and was done when he passed, the FOP created its own chapter, the Jim Crowley Retired Officers FOP Lodge. Oh, that's awesome. And that gives all the retired officers a place to still be a part of the FOP. They get all the benefits of the FOP. They're totally involved. And I'm I am lucky enough to be the trustee of the auxiliary of that FOP, and I worked with some amazing women. And, you know, Brent Jex, Travis Brower, these men are both retired now as well, and uh, they're still leadership in the FOP of Utah. Oh, that's awesome. They loved him so much, and they saw to it, these men, they were there for my dad every second in the end. They were there for me and my brothers. And when he passed, it was, what do you need, Holly? What do you need? I didn't know what I needed. Yeah. I'm too busy being strong for my father. I promised him I'd be strong. I never cried in front of him, not until I said I love you in his last breath. And he died on the 3rd. I wanted to bury him on Veterans Day, which was the 11th. I thought that would just be too hard a task. But I knew there were thousands of people wanting to fly in from all over the country. We needed the time. Brent Jex made sure, as well as the chief of West Valley City, she was incredible west valley police officers did an honor guard for my father they stood by his coffin inside in that mortuary for those entire eight days 24 7 my father was never alone Uh, travis and i were able to dress my father in his uniform and get his i did his hair and made sure his makeup was good and they put all of his you know stars stars count for eight years he had five of them which is unheard of and he he just looked dashing and we were very proud of his funeral we had a wonderful wonderful turnout Uh, but you know it wasn't until the funeral started that those men and women who were standing guard by his side left him and then we were all with him until they buried him Mm. resilience for me is my father's legacy i have to talk about him michelle you know i'm sure you both know But talking about him and what he did, what he does and who he was, it keeps him here. It keeps his message alive. I hope people that know about him or know about me know how much, how much value law enforcement has in our community and who they walk out, you know, out the door and say goodbye to. Oh, you're you're absolutely a great ambassador for police officers all over our state, for sure. That's definitely the, one of the, the messages that we come away with. <laughs> the National Law Enforcement Officers Memorial Fund is also on Facebook, and you can look at that, and they'll tell you about Police Week, and if you'd like to donate, um, we donate every year to the fund. And I also ask, some people want to help law enforcement, 
the FOP right now has a, a charity on the Amazon Smiles. Utah FOP. It's that charity that helps give officers and first responders mental health if they need it. It's paid for through that charity. You can just click it. So anytime you're shopping on Amazon, a little portion of that gets paid to that fund. And the FOP is always taking donations to help their officers. And I just ask people at the end of the day, you know, to please consider checking in with officers once in a while. Uh, the Utah State FOP.com backslash mental health program is also another way to donate to the FOP, and that helps them cover the mental health of these officers. Again, it keeps them safe from getting, re- you know, repercussions from asking. Right. Some departments don't want their, their officers in a mental health thing because they'll pull them off the street, think they're in danger, when it could just be the officer was on a call last night that really stuck it right. you know, in his heart. And let's, it, and let's kid, help them. Age. Yep, let's let's help them get the resources that they need in our beautiful police force. If I could just add one thing, that on behalf of my father, his legacy, my brothers, my sister-in-law, all of his grandchildren, we all strive every day to live up to our father's legacy because he was bigger than life. He was a giant among men, and we know that, and he loved bigger than anyone I've ever known, his law enforcement brothers and sisters. So for all of those people who are missing their officer, who are missing their fallen officer situation, whichever it is, give extra hugs to them. It's not an easy life to love an officer, but it certainly is one that you'll be proud of. Beautifully said. Thank you. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for your father's service, your brother's service, really your entire family. Thank you for being, like Michelle said, an ambassador for not just the police officer, but for the law enforcement family. I loved hearing yes. <laughs> so much So much of your story of resilience is this, this network, this community. You knew that the FOP had your back. The police officers know that they'll be there for each other. They'll be there for each other's families. And I think so many times when we talk about resilience, we talk about the importance of knowing you are not alone, reaching out to help, but also reaching out to be helped. And how important that is to be able to say, I'm I'm strong and I'm capable and I need your help. And how beautiful that is in resilience to say, I'm going to get up and go to work every day or I'm going to love a police officer that goes to work every day because I know we're not alone on this journey. Whether they live or die, they serve yeah. with honor and integrity. And we are just eternally grateful and want to thank you for joining us and in, in sharing about your father and his decades of service to the city of West Valley, the state of Utah, and the entire country's police force. Thank you so much. Holly, thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us about your dad. It's a great time to let people know. I actually just learned about the Utah's, with an S, fallen.org. And it's interesting because if you go to the Fallen tab, you can read about the Fallen Officer's story. And uh, this year, they're going to be honoring all of Utah's 147 fallen officers. And you can go through that whole list and it goes back to the 1860s. So, and every one of those officers has a story of of service, of sacrifice, a, a family behind them. And Holly, thank you for what you've shared. We hope that our listeners will, will pay close attention because the memorial service for Utah's fallen is this Thursday, May 5th, which is right away. Of course, you mentioned that the national events in Washington, D.C. take place next week, the 11th through the 17th. But always is a good day to recognize our fallen officers. 
If you like what you've heard, you can subscribe for free to our podcast and give us a rating and review. If you know of someone or if you have a story that you'd like to share with us, we would love to give you that opportunity. Please send us an email at rrpodcast at ksl.com. And you can also find us on Facebook at Relentlessly Resilient or on Instagram at Relentlessly Resilient Podcast. And whatever you do today, remember to be kind. You have no idea the struggles other people are dealing with in their lives. Have a great day, everyone. Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen.